Hello and welcome to the Right View Life podcast. My name is Ian Broom. And I'm Donna Sorensen. And we're getting much better at that. <laughs> I know. Not that it's the most complicated start in the world. It's not complicated, but um, it's, uh, it's uh, surprisingly challenging for the likes of you and I. I had a real urge to say from Copenhagen, but I didn't. You should have done it. It would have livened you up a little bit. Yeah, maybe you should say from Sheffield, Ian Broom. From Sheffield, from Sheffield, England, <laughs> in the United Kingdom. Me. Ian, have you thought about changing your name to Ian Boom? <laughs> I have not. Why do you ask? Uh, was it was it not on Twitter this week that somebody suggested that uh, that you do it? Oh no, I know what it was. It was the video for um, on my shelf. Yes, that's right. In fact, you just said to me. You just said to me before um, we started recording. Has anything happened this week? And we both went, nope, <laughs> nothing interesting. <laughs> um, no, that's totally right. And you had like a tribute video. Somebody did a did their own <laughs> copy of uh, on my shelf. It's not called a tribute video, so let me. Would you? This is this has gone off in a in a different direction already. But allow me to explain. So, YouTube videos. There is a community of people called booktubers. I've mentioned this before in the podcast. So people who do book reviews um, and talk about their, their 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 bookshelves and the different books. They talk about book hauls. So if they go out in March and buy a thousand books in March, then they show the world and it's a really fantastic community and it's it's really good and they do this thing called tagging which people just do on all of youtube not just the kind of the booktube community whereas someone will start a tag so it might be i don't know i'm going to make a really rubbish one up now but it could be your it could be it could be the um best science fiction book tag that's a really bad example but and then someone the person who starts that tag will talk about their favorite science fiction book and then someone else will go and they they might include sort of um, the names of another YouTuber in the description. So then that person has, you know, it's a tag, it's that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And yeah. in the end, you've got lots of videos about that subject. Now, about seven or eight months ago, I did, um, I wasn't really intending it to be a tag. I was just a bit bored because I was on my own and the, 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 the twins were in bed and, you know, I was lonely, frankly. And I recorded this video called On My Shelf, where I put the camera in front of me with the bookcases behind. And the, the idea is that um, um, people will suggest to me numbers. So the shelves have a number, one, two, whatever it is, and then one to 40 across for the book. So if someone says three, ten, I choose the tenth book on the third shelf. And then I talk about it. And the idea, which I think was the nice part about it, was that even if I haven't read that book, which was the case quite, quite often, um, then... I still know the story behind it. So books are more than just the, the the content, more than just the fiction, more than just the insides. They are actually all about where you bought them and what they mean to you and all that kind of thing as well. Anyway, to get to the point, um, one kind person initially did, also did it, said, oh, that's really good, and, and, and did their own version. And that was Rincey Reads, I think, on YouTube. Um, and then... Sana from whose uh, uh, YouTube name is Books and Quills, she did it, and then this week um, I think it's Jesse the Reader, who is a very popular booktuber. He also did it, and um, to get to the point, I think he may have said that the person who started this tag was a chap called Ian Boom, <laughs> which is brilliant. I loved it. 
um, which is fine. I mean, I have been called worse. I do seem to have a, slight, a slightly, a slightly, um, it's only slightly unusual, my name. I mean, Ian is a very conventional name, but slightly different spelling. Broom, no, I didn't think it was that unusual, but I suppose it might be a little bit unusual as a surname. But people get fooled by the E on the end, and um, it has led to lots of kind of name-related calamities. Well, it's something you can consider in the future anyway, mm. when you're really famous. Yeah. That's great then, yeah. Thank you for uh, just clearing that up. Yeah, I didn't um, really need to, did I? Sorry about that. <laughs> um, have you been this week? <clears throat> I've been tremendous, actually. It's been good. A lovely uh, week, a lovely Easter weekend. I'm not a religious person, but um, it's nice to have a few days off work, isn't it? Mm, Eat yeah, chocolate. Absolutely. Yep. Um, so that was nice. You, you've been in Spain. I have, yeah. Um, How many poems did you write? Oh, I only, I have actually recently written one, but none down there. But I don't tend to write when I'm away. I tend to just um, pick up little bits and bobs in my head and write down notes and then write when I get back. I you find know, it very difficult to write there. You know someone who travels quite a lot, like you do, when they refer to Spain as down there. <laughs> D- down there to me is kind of sort of my, li- my living room. <laughs> Well, it was a longer flight than I expected with um, with a 17-month-old. Uh, three and a half hours, just for reference. But it was it was delightful. I had a lovely time, but got back to Hay Feverama. Was that a Danish TV show? I wish. Yesterday was the highest recorded pollen count in history in Denmark. Um, and I thought my head was actually going to explode off my neck. <laughs> Did it? Well, it felt like that all day today, but it's still there, throbbing a little bit, but um, <laughs> that sounded a bit rude. But anyway. It really didn't. <laughs> okay, good. Um, anyway, don't worry, I've antihistamine myself up and I'm feeling a bit better now, but um, that's why I'm a little bit nasal. Um, not that you probably can tell. Can you tell? I don't you, know. You, you, sound, you sound wonderful. Oh, thank you. Thanks. So yes, yeah, so all good. Okay, well, what are you going to talk to us about as you're uh, as you're um, um, uh, on on a roll? Well, let's we, we got let's well let's go through it. Let's stop mumbling for a start. Let's go through it. Later on, we've got a listener's question, which is a tremendous listener's question. We're going mm-hmm. to come on to that. It's going to be about whether we whether we and I guess the general writership um, actually like the characters that we write about. It's a good question. Mm-hmm. Um, from uh, questions from Gavarides at Gavarides on Twitter, and then before that, I want to talk about curiosity and the idea of writers being a naturally, perhaps maybe that's the question we're asking, but um, uh, being curious types, and um, and and whether that sort of sense of curiosity is what leads us to write, or whether it's the other way around, whether the act of writing makes us more curious and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but before all that, we, we've each chosen either a news item or a article of some sort that we wish to talk about. And, um, and why don't you take it away? Well, I wanted to talk about my namesake, Donna Tart, and her winning of the Pulitzer Prize for her latest novel, The Goldfinch. Take it you heard about that? Heard all about it, yep. Do you know much about Donna Tart? This is one of those times, again, where I admit in public that I haven't read someone who is extremely famous and has written books that everyone, I think, should probably have read. So, no, I'm afraid well, that's, not. That's very interesting. I mean, you know, she's only written three novels. Um, and um, 
about 10 years a piece. It's taken her to write each one, 11 years for the last one. Um, I think she's a fascinating character. I really do. She's, um, she's very enigmatic. Um, but what interested me was that she's won prizes. I, th- I don't know whether she won... Um, oh, actually, I should double-check whether she's won prizes for every book. But as somebody who is such an icon of American literature, which she is, would you not agree? Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, to, to have taken so long to write each book, I am staggered that she can maintain the same language, the same pace, just the same desire to keep going on a book. 11 years. You, yeah, you do know that that's roughly how long it took me to write mine, though. <laughs> right. You haven't forgotten that. 11 years. Well, it took, I started in 2003 and I didn't finish my first draft properly until about 2009. And then I spent a couple of years working on it with my agent and trying to get published and all that kind of thing. It was about, it was about nine or ten years by the time from starting writing to publication. I guess. But I think with you, I mean, Donna Tartt is a writer who, who writes as her primary function in life. Back when you started, first of all, you were studying, although that she did actually when she first wrote The Secret History, she was studying. Um, but you were studying and then afterwards getting into the world of work, weren't you? I was indeed. I was working full time for the majority of the time I was writing the book. So Donna Tartt, studying, starting out in her life, got The Secret History published when she graduated I think pretty much straight away she was had you know friends in high places and very well connected she was part of very exciting scene but I think I just think it's really interesting that her subsequent books have still taken that long and I'm sure that she has you know engagements and other things she needs to do but she's not sped up she's got slower and well um, I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna come on to my my piece is about an author who is it's a different issue but and but it's basically about the fact that uh, life takes over so it's it's not about how long she takes to write the books but it's about you know not being able to dedicate as much time as perhaps people might think to the mm. actual act of writing so maybe Donna Tart's the same I mean I don't know I'm, I'm I am all over the place here I don't know anything about it but perhaps she may have had kids or something like that or you know stuff happens in your life or or maybe she's just... Do you know, I thought there was a really interesting quote from a friend of the show, Nathan Filer, when he won the Costa Prize. Uh, yeah, woo! Yeah, congratulations, Nathan. Hopefully we'll get him on the show sometime soon. Yeah. But, you know, he's just won his debut novel, won the uh, Costa Prize for Fiction in, in the UK. A huge, amazing achievement. And he said in his... Um, he was inevitably asked about his next book, you know, are you writing another book and all that kind of thing. And I'm going to paraphrase him because I can't remember the the exact quote. But he did say, and I thought it was really interesting, he did say, well, I don't really have to write a second book. And as someone who has kind of been struggling to write a second book, almost entirely because I've had children, uh, twins, in in the time since the first one was published... um, but just the very concept, and I don't, I don't want to panic my agent here, you know, everything's going to be fine. <laughs> but, you know, the very concept was, was actually, I thought, do you know, if I never write another book, I, I, I still have that book that I did write and that is published and that people have read and is on shelves and stuff. Mm. And it also reminds me of a quote by Ricky Gervais, which I've always 
loved. I think this is just such a brilliant quote. So Ricky Gervais, creator, writer of The Office, and when he was doing the promotional work for, I think it was the second series of Extras, so the world had seen um, you know, the first series of Extras, and it, I think generally it's considered to be you know, good. I think it, it got generally positive reviews. But he did have a lot of people saying, well, you know, it's not as good as The Office, is it? And I remember an interview where someone that was put to him by the interviewer and he said, well, I don't think so. But even if that was the case, I also wrote The Office. <laughs> and I just thought that was such a great, such a great quote. It's like, yeah. uh, so maybe maybe Donatot has a similar sort of attitude. You know, if it takes her a while to write another back book, who cares? Because, you know, she wrote The Secret History and that seems to be fairly wow. popular. But fabulous that she had, she doesn't have that pressure, that she hasn't got her agent ringing her up and going... My God, where's that goddamn book? Because I, I, I feel like I talk about George R. R. Martin quite a lot, but he, I, I heard him recently saying that the TV series, they're catching up to him. He needs to speed up. I mean, that's a lot of pressure, you know, when you've got that entire, um, yes, production. Well, George R. R. Martin's entire readership famously are panicking because he might die before he uh, he finishes the books i'm sorry to be slightly somber about it but i you know that is a that's an actual thing that because he's you know he's a big guy um he's getting on a bit and people are slightly concerned that he might not actually finish game of thrones yeah but maybe that's the final twist maybe or someone else will finish it oh no that's a terrible thing to say i, I didn't mean that you I ta- did you, well, you I did didn't. say it it doesn't matter Do you know what i was thinking about i was thinking about the monster calls you know um fabulous book Siobhan Dowd. Did you... Uh, she started it and then she tragically died. Have you read that book? I haven't, no. Um, but I do remember when Brandon Lee died What's making the crow. I know. Runs in the family, eh? Yeah, Siobhan Dowd, and it was finished by Patrick Ness. Um, it was... I just think... I don't even think she wrote more than the first chapter, if she even wrote the first chapter. But he took that and he ran, ran with it in her honour and it was, it's, yeah, amazing success, so it can happen. Indeed. Um, yeah, but sorry. Anyway, to finish off about Donna Tart, I um, uh, the only thing I wanted to say is, is that I can, in this case, with the Pulitzer Prize and stuff, I, I feel like, for some reason, I feel like she's a writer that deserves to have awards, even though I, she's in a very select group as, as being one of the very few authors whose book I've not finished. And that was The, the Little Friend. I gave up on it. I was very right. bored. It's, well, I mean, that we've talked about that before, haven't we, giving up on books? Sometimes you just, you know, you just have to. I'm struggling through a book at the moment, which I would like to talk about on another podcast, but I haven't finished it yet, and it's really, really good, but I am struggling to read it. Mm. Well, I think The the Little Friend, I could just sense, I just felt like it was really slow, and I can now I can see her sitting around for 10 years writing it. <laughs> but as that being said, I just feel like, I don't know why I feel like she deserves to be up there with the great and the good. Um, I haven't read The Secret History, and, and it's just literally because of her persona, I think. Yeah, she has one of those, she has one of those names, doesn't she? It's a very, she's, yeah. a, she's a very striking sort of literary figure, I guess. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that was quite an interesting Pulitzer Prize, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe we should actually go and do some research and read some of her novels and then have a conversation about it. Well, I mean, I tried, didn't I? I don't want to <laughs> go back. True. Don't make me go back to the little friend, please. You don't oh, have I... to. <laughs> Thank you. Um, 
So what were you going to talk to us all about today? Okay, so I'll try and make this brief because I noticed that we are cracking on with time already. But um, this is, it's just, it's a very small thing. Um, but I thought it was interesting. So I referred to it already. But um, this is um, a blog post by um, uh, an author um, called Shannon Hale. And um, this is a, a, a New York Times bestselling author of children's and teen fiction i confess now that i don't don't know um an awful lot about her um i guess that's because i don't read an awful lot of uh children's and teen fiction so i apologize in advance for that hopefully it's not really the point the point is that this this is an interesting blog post that she's written and the title of it is clear as day i am not accessible um and i'll just read the first paragraph and then another section to you it says this is uh, this is Shannon Hale writing. I just read through some accumulated emails that go to my public account, and quite a few said some variant of, I will no longer read your books if you don't answer my email. Some said it nicely, in brackets, thank you, sweeties. Some were, frankly, my darlings, quite rude, like shockingly rude and demanding. Mm. Um, and then she goes on to sort of uh, point out that um, she could either choose to write answer emails all day or she could write her books. Um, and then she says this, I am not accessible. I cannot be your pen pal. I cannot be your writing mentor. Email and Twitter and blogs and Facebook and Tumblr do not paint an accurate portrait of life. I am not sitting on my computer all day available to communicate with you. I am cleaning the house and reading to my kids and physically pulling a and physically pulling my twins apart so they don't scratch out each other's eyeballs. Hmm. And then it goes on this long list of of, of of things where she's basically saying it may seem to you my readers that I am sat on my arse doing nothing and not re- not responding to your emails but actually I am not rich I am not kind of super wealthy I am a working mother and most of my time throughout the entire week is spent looking after my children and I write when I can and you know kind of I'm sorry but you're not the most important thing in my life that kind of thing Wow. Well, I mean, I applaud her um, her frankness and her ability to say it in a, a time when there's so much pressure to be constantly online and constantly accessible. And you, you, you feel, I'm sure, like I do, that it's so difficult to to pull yourself off all of these different channels. I find it very difficult to pull myself off a number a number of things. Sorry. And. So yes, I agree. I, no, I totally said that I wasn't. I hadn't even got the rest of that sentence. I did it entirely for the cheap, pathetic <laughs> joke that you led me into. <laughs> um, oh dear. Yeah, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to have children, young children, twins especially. I like to think because you know I'm allowed to. Um, it's very difficult to kind of do what you did before. We've talked about this endlessly on the podcast in the last year or so. Um, and that's fine. I don't. I don't want to kind of overplay that. It's just true. It's more. It's difficult. Mm. The tone of this. The tone of this. This is kind of one of one of my points. The tone of this piece is kind of as I've just said. It's pretty. It's quite spiky. It's quite enough. You know, considering this is a direct, a direct kind of address to her readers, of which presumably she has lots. Um, um, it's pretty spiky. It's quite confrontational. Mm. Um, whilst being very, you know presumably heartfelt and true and all those kinds of things and it made me think goodness me whenever i've anyone's had a you know, when I, 
sorry, whenever anyone's kind of given me any kind of indication that they're interested in my novel, Ace for Angelica, or, or, or my writing, or the blog, in fact, or the podcast, I sort of pounce on it. And I, and, and generally speaking, if I'm, if I can, I'm, um, I engage those people as quickly as possible. And, and, you know, there have been occasions where people haven't been able to get my book because they've not lived in the right country. So I've personally have gone out of my way to either arrange it with with the legend the publisher or to send them you know which i probably shouldn't do but send them one of my own copies because i think i'd rather someone who wants to read my book be able to rather than um i don't have many copies but rather than have it you know a copy sat on my shelf doing nothing Mm. so i'm kind of the opposite i've gone of i've kind of gone out of my way to do that but maybe that's just maybe that's just because i've got considerably fewer readers there are there's a smaller group of people who are clamoring for you know a, a bit of a bit of anything from me um and that's fine I, I realize that is almost um you know that's a large part to do with it um and also just one book i mean i think this is you know a question of scale someone like shannon hale who i have heard of and my little sister used to like her books when she was younger you know is is quite is a productive writer you know and i I just, I love the idea of, I mean, I bought someone's poetry collection recently that I actually knew and the package I got it in was just gorgeous. She sent it to me like hand wrapped and it was just amazing with stamps on and everything. It is, it was a real treat, but you know, when you've had 30, 40 books, whatever, and you know, all of these different commitments are being pulled every which way but loose, that will all end. Personal contact will just be via Twitter. And going out to do readings. You're, you're, I, I guess you're a different kind of writer, aren't you? If you're at that point where you've got lots of books and a huge read- readership, you're a different kind of writer. If you're me or someone someone who's just starting out or someone who isn't published yet and is just, you know, just, just still in that kind of novelty stage of, you know, I've written a book. <laughs> you're yeah. kind of, you're more, you're more kind of, you, you're, you're, I guess you, you have a different kind of mindset, um, and that's not to say one is right or wrong. The, the other point that I thought, well, two other points, I guess. Um, one of them is, um, I, I think what she's trying, what she's getting at, is um, a, a general misconception about authors and what they do. So her point is uh, that she makes says, "I am not wealthy," like I say, and then she goes on to talk about, you know, I get only get a few hours a week to to write. I'm, a, I'm basically a working mum, is what she says. Mm. And I had a, a very small taste of this a few months ago and I'm only going to touch on this very briefly because I don't want to go into it I just don't want to go into it but basically I I had a, a minor problem um with someone who was who, who I'd somehow managed to upset they they um in one way or another on the internet and they made their feelings really clear um on a in in, in what was supposedly a review um, and it was quite personal, and I was I was really really upset by it in the end. At first, I thought, "Oh, this is just crazy." Then, the more I thought about it, I thought, "Gosh, this is this is really rubbish. This has happened. This is now permanent on the internet." And I found it I found it quite upsetting. And I thought I was trying to work out why I found it quite upsetting. Because I'm pretty thick skinned. I've had pl- you know my plenty of rejections, like most authors, and all that kind of thing. Not a problem at all. Bad reviews, absolutely fine. There are you know there are they're available on the internet if you want to find a bad review. That everyone has them. But what I was, what, what upset me about it was this m- misconception about about um, what I felt was a misconception about me personally, but also about just sort of what authors do and, and, and what they should kind of 
um, what's kind of fair game to say about them, I think, or to or, or, or just generally what people think. And I think I think perhaps I forget sometimes that if you that if you have a novel that people can buy from a shop, then people. I'm not. People don't think you're famous. That's not the right term. But there is a certain kind of cachet that goes with that, where people think about you perhaps a little differently. Now, to me, I, I'm not saying I'm not saying that about myself. But I think that there is that kind of that kind of I don't know sort of thing that still exists. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reality is the absolute reality, which I which I always hope to convey on this podcast because it's a, called Write for Your Life and it's about kind of the realities of writing. The reality is that I'm just a normal bloke who happens to have written a book, having had a, done a degree and and that kind of thing, like loads and loads of other people have. I'm a normal person with a wife and, and, and two young children and a mortgage and all those kinds of things. And and it was that misconception about uh, that that I that it suddenly dawned on me that maybe not everyone realises that. <laughs> mm. um, and and I think that that's partly what um, Shannon Hale is getting at here. It's it's quite a spiky way of doing it. I have to. I have to say, but I think she's effectively saying, "Look, I can't answer your email. I've got children here, and I'm, you know, I'm not some sat in some ivory tower writing all day. I've got a life to lead, just like you." And um, and so that leads me to the other question, which perhaps you can answer because I'm talking a lot. But it also made me think: What right do readers have over you as an author, hmm. if any? Well, back when I worked in, in publishing, you know, we got a lot of fan mails, fan letters and things like that into various authors and emails and things like that. And we would forward them on. But I also had authors that in, in Ireland, it was in Ireland that I was working, you know, were very, very well known to kids and stuff like that. Once uh, writers had lots and lots of books out as well. And they just weren't able to um, to answer them all. Some of them really, really did. And they just made sure that they answered it. And I just think it's a personality thing, you know. Um, I have mentioned before that I met Seamus Heaney, the great poet. He was the kind of person that if you contacted him would probably write back, you know, um, send you something personal. So I think it's, it's, it's not so much about rights because nobody has any kind of right over you. But it's about what you want to get out of it, of, of the role of being a writer or in the public sphere, which you ultimately are. I mean, you're not, you know, you're not a celebrity necessarily. Or, but no, no, I, don't, I don't think there's any not necessarily about it. <laughs> no, I don't mean you. I'm talking about the general you. I know. Um, you know, most writers, you wouldn't, you you know, walk down the street and go, oh my God, look who that is. That's that's the, the nature of the beast, sitting behind a writing desk writing all day. Um, but yeah, but I just think you, if you... If you have the chance to to engage with people, I was thinking about Mallory Blackman, the, um, the children's laureate. She's someone who's very active on Twitter um, with her, you know, her demographic, the people, kids who are reading her books. So, um, yeah, it's just whatever floats your boat, whatever you can cope with. Everyone's just trying to do their best. It's true. I think your accessibility probably changes. Um, I, 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 I don't think that you can be completely accessible. For example, when you do have small children, but you know, once you do have, you know, people even just throughout a day, for example, Twitter. Sometimes you can post a lot and check a lot, and then you might have an hour where you have to do something and you can't do anything. So your level of engagement is constantly changing with all these different platforms. And I have to say, it it may have been a slightly spiky way to say it, but I, I I'm quite quite inspired to just say that you know this idea that I'm not constantly online 
I was like, oh God, I am constantly online. You know, when she said I have a, a world, a, a life outside, yes, I do, but I'm way too sucked in. Way too sucked into the online world. This I'm going to try like, and pull back. Sounds like a topic potentially for next week. Because, <laughs> um, yes, I, I think I'm the same, but um, it, it depends on what you're doing, doesn't it, I guess? Yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Shannon. Thanks, Shannon. Thanks for the inspiration for the... I mean, we shouldn't really thank her. She's, not, she's not listening. She's way too to busy. Get lost. <laughs> yeah, she would say, "Oh, thanks for." Oh, just, shall I email us? Oh, we um, we read your we read your blog post and um, and uh, and we thought it was great and we were really inspired. We did it. We did an entire fifteen minutes on a on on a. Um, Stop emailing me. Get back. Get back. <laughs> and she just waves sort of a magic literary stick at us, and we all sort of. Um, Cower. Puffs. Oh, puffs of smoke. Or cower. Good. Either. Oh, now, Ian, curiosity. What did curiosity do? Don't. I'm not. I, do you know what? Obviously, as soon as you said to me about curiosity, that's the first thing you want to say. And I have just been trying not to say it. And I think it's a little bit upsetting that every time you say the word curiosity, all I can see in my head is a cat. It's just, It's a shame. Now, There's more to that word than just cats. Well, a lot more, as we're about to find <laughs> out. But did were curiosity kill the cats? A, is that a, is that a proper? Is that like a, a known phrase, or is it just a band from the eighties in the UK? I'm pretty sure they were named after the phrase. There is a phrase called "curiosity kill the cat" that I definitely should have known about and shouldn't have indicated that perhaps I didn't on a p- podcast. Absolutely, right? Sound like a right buffoon. I feel like one. <laughs> Um, I always imagine that it's because cats tend to, and I do love cats, but they do tend to kind of get themselves run over quite a lot. And that's <laughs> where I imagined it came from. <laughs> you think that's where it came from, cats getting yeah. run over? They're like, oh, what those bright lights coming towards me? That can't be true. That can't be why it's... <laughs> okay, but in, in a literary sense, what are we talking about here with curiosity? So I listened to the podcast Back to Work with Merlin Mann and Dan Benjamin, which is also hosted on the 5x5 network, which uh, you should uh, enjoy greatly because that's where we are now too. Um, it's fantastic. Episode 164 of Back to Work is called Back in the Medieval Village, the particular episode. And they were talking about curiosity and um, the nature of curiosity and whether someone is naturally curious or whether the, whether um, uh, whether whether curiosity is something that is kind of something that you can be inspired to be or that you can learn or that kind of thing. Mm. And they were talking about it in the context. Well, one of the, one of the examples was, I think it was Dan, Dan Benjamin who said um, that when he was young, he just took a radio apart because he had to know how it was built. He just had to know. So just dismantled it and found out. Um, and it's, it's that idea of kind of not just accepting what's in front of you and 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 kind of wanting to have that kind of deeper knowledge or just think about something that little bit extra to kind of really explore it Mm -hmm. um and i thought well this sounds like an interesting topic for for writing so we've got about 10 minutes or so which we can just sort of cover this i wondered and i shall leave this question with you is the equivalent to taking a radio apart 
um, for writers, particularly writers of fiction, but not necessarily, it could be all of the writers too, is it the idea of wanting to take people apart? Are we naturally curious because we, 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 we see someone or we overhear a conversation and we just want to know the rest of it? We want to know what led to that particular conversation or why someone did something or why a character might end up in the position they end up in. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And not just the the taking people apart, but taking situations or mad occurrences, taking taking everything apart. Absolutely. That actually brings me back to Donna Tartt, the secret history, her first novel. Um I was reading about the fact that it wasn't it wasn't a who done it. It was a why done it. And you found out right at the start is a murder. Um story murder I was gonna say murder mystery but it just sounded so naff but um where you found out who did it and everything to do with the murder and then it worked back to backwards from it so it was a murder mystery turned inside out so it's absolutely why done it it's a good term yeah it is um but I know a lot of people that that do things like take radios apart I also have ex-boyfriends that did things like that that took whole washing machines apart and like laid them out piece by piece next to each other um, it must have been a fun day for you. <laughs> um, and people who are... I, I, I don't know. Obviously, every, not everybody is that curious about how things work. But I love the fact that there are different types of curiosity. And there are people who are seriously curious about how things work. But it has to be the absolute literal nitty-gritty of how it works. Whereas for writers, it's more the, the philosophical side of things that's a really good way of thinking about it i like that mm. oh thanks well well the example i was trying to think of of examples um that i could draw on in my own writing and the only thing i could really think about i think I, well for a start i think like most writers uh i think that um conversations overheard conversations little phrases or snippets of of uh of things that we we kind of overhear on the bus or the train or that our families say or friends say, conversations in the pub, conversations at work. Everyone has those things. But I think writers just hear, can hear a single thing and just latch onto it and just and we just think, how can that be? What, what else happened there? What, what's the context of that? Mm. Um, and I've talked before, I think, about the first, the first line that I wrote of the novel, which was Benny paints pictures with his eyes closed, and I didn't have anything else, but I just thought, Benny paints pictures with his eyes closed, and I became curious about the idea of someone who painted with their eyes closed. What situation mm. would that be? Where's the story there? What, what happens around that? And actually, that's, that was the starting point for an entire novel. It wasn't yeah. what the novel was about in the end, really. But that line is still there. And that was, it's the context around that, 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 that comes from, I think, a certain sense of curiosity. And when people sometimes, it doesn't happen very often, when people ask me about the book and they ask, why would someone who, at the time, who was 23 years old, why would you write about serious illness and a woman in her 50s who's had a stroke? Why would you do that? And um, and, and I've, my my answer has kind of developed over the years. I was never quite sure what to say. But actually, the reason I did that is, and the reason I, I I sort of love writing and I love reading, 
It's because I often th- I th- I kind of thought what what would I do if I was in that situation? This is a horrendous situation that someone's in. It could equally, if I was writing a different book, be an amazing, fantastic, wonderful situation. But it's always that extra context that I'm curious about. So okay, so this character is in this particular situation. What would I do if I was in that position? What would someone else do? And then ultimately, what would my characters do when they're presented with this information? And it's that kind of curiosity around a central theme or, you know, even in some cases, like I say, a single phrase or a single a single kind of event. It's the, it's the curiosity that comes with, with wanting to know what else might happen. And when you've been writing enough of the book... Um, do you stop thinking, what would I do? And then what would this character do? And just think, oh, what would this character do? Because you know them so well. Well, there's definitely an element of... I think that I think that m- most fiction starts with a huge amount of curiosity. But you... Because of the nature of writer... I guess when you take a radio apart, something is already built. And you are finding out how it was built by someone else. But if you're, curi- if you're curious to know what happened about a world and a story and a group of characters that you are then actually going on to create, you kind of fill in the gaps yourself. So there does come a point, I, well, certainly did with me, where your curiosity is kind of replaced by a certain kind of mechanics. You kind of become absorbed less with the curiousness of it all and more with the kind of, OK, so this is how we would react in that situation. This is what I want him to do in the end. And this is what needs to happen in between for this narrative to make any kind of sense and to have any kind of um, um, progression or to grip a reader. You start thinking about the mechanics of a story as opposed to that kind of curiosity that led you to it in the first place, I think. Yeah. What, what, how about you? You're a poet. This is a slightly different scale. How, how do you...? Well, it's a different scale, but I think that's that's what happens is that you're always seeing things and wondering why they're happening or not so much why they're happening, but imagining alternative reasons for why they're happening rather than the obvious. I think that's, that's what I, you know, done with my first collection. Anyway, I could give an example of a poem I wrote about starling murmurations, which I I actually wanted to know why, why are they doing it? Obviously that was the first thing because it's, it is incredible. It's an incredible thing, you know? And so once I knew how they were actually doing it, like wingtip to wingtip and just turning at exactly the same time and and all that, then I could imagine why they were doing it. And that it wasn't, that there was a bigger meaning for it. And of course, there are not many, not many uh, works of fiction are written without a certain amount of research, as you've just sort of described. It was the curiousness about a particular kind of natural events that led you to find out about it and ultimately write about it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes the novels that most impress me are the ones where I feel, my God, this this writer has really, they really know their stuff. I mean, I love, don't get me wrong, I'm big into imaginary worlds and things like that, but, but when real things are, are, are woven into novels, I love it when I just, I really believe what I've read. And that, that I think is an impressive skill. It is, and it's always uh, it's always nice to um, be extremely knowledgeable about a specific subject. I, I am not one of those people. I'm I'm I feel like I'm a jack of all trades type. No, but if you were gonna, you know, you for example, when you were writing about strokes, you you need to 
to really understand what's going on, you know? I mean, and you have to, at that particular time, that's your focus, to become as knowledgeable about something as you can. I guess that's what it's like to be a writer. You just move from one thing to the next. That's true. And then the challenge, of course, is to try and work out how you sort of transfer the knowledge into a story, how you kind of, how you know which bits to leave out and which bits to are important so actually in 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 the novel there isn't in my novel there isn't really that much description of someone you know there's no medical no, there's not a lot of medical description because it just wasn't particularly relevant to the story but i had to yeah. sort of find all that stuff out and learn it so that i could put the context in mm. well my final question is do you think uh, writers are a special breed in this sense no as i said i, th- I think there are people that that actually take physically or physically take things apart and uh, as their outlet for curiosity and there are other people that sit there looking at the clouds thinking ooh why are there clouds in a Somerset accent yeah I'm going to write a poem about it I asked uh, the question on Twitter I just asked about um, whether writers are a special breed and we had some responses here's one from HC Marks at HC Marks I think we internalise a lot more than other people, this is writers, then spit it back out on the page. Many are introverts, we watch from behind, so maybe we're more curious, we ask more questions. Um, I, and, and then he says, I'd like to, I like to observe and report, not necessarily interact. Mm-hmm. Um, here's another good, good response. Writers are so varied that I think it's hard to attribute, attribute any universal trait to us. And then this is the same person, this is at Linus Edwards. Um, and then he says, remember, both Anne Frank and Hitler were writers. Wow. Which is true. And my brother, so this is my real life brother, at Jambo Boogie on the internet. What, your brother? My brother, he responded to this. Is he sending you more abuse? <laughs> yes. So like your hair. I'm basically being trolled by my brother tonight. <laughs> it's the first of his trolling, messages of his trolling. Uh, he wasn't the person I was referring to earlier on, by the way. <laughs> Oh, um, no, of course not. Here we go. At Jambo Boogie, um, I said, do you need to be special? Are, are writers special? Do you know, do we, um, are we naturally more curious than other people? He responded, and I apologise in advance for the lack of political correctness in this. I, we are related, but we are very different in our outlook and opinion. He responded, special needs. You have to be mad to write a book. 99% are bought to be... Here we go, he can't, he can't even sort of spell. 99% are bought by three people. Writing books is a hobby. <laughs> That's nice, isn't it? I'm related to him. It's amazing. I love it. He later went on to say, because um, I asked for listeners' questions, we've got one coming up. His listeners' question was, why do you read a book when you can watch the film? <laughs> do you know, when you go back to see him, does he get you in a headlock and, like, put his knuckles in your head? Verbally, Yes. Pretty I totally much. imagine him doing that. He's it's my amazing. Old, he's my older brother. He's six years older than me. I mean, I, I, I love him, but um, um, uh, I don't trust him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, oh, well, that's... Good uh, stuff. Have we covered curiosity? Is we, uh, this is, what, two weeks running, Donna. We have, I think, overrun in our first section because we've ended up gabbing about the subject in an interesting way, I hope. Um, and we've not left enough time for uh, our main topic. But, you know... Next week, we're going to change all that. Don't you worry. <laughs> do you have a xylophone nearby? Oh, I do. Are you ready, everybody, for the 
Listener's question. Listener's question to complete episode 108 of the Right For Your Life podcast comes from Gav Reads, at Gav Reads on Twitter, um, who is a fantastic book blogger and um, and uh, a kind of a, an advocate of all things literary. Um, and his question, which is a very good one, is, do you like all the characters you write about? Now, Donna, I know for a fact that you write about your husband in some of your poetry. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets right on my nerves. No, yeah. Um, I think that's a difficult one for for me to answer because I've only written a few poems where I have not written about real situations or real people. So I don't think I can answer that yet. So the reason you're not, answer, you're not answering, you're, you, it's because you don't write about fictional people so much in your poetry no and I think that they're so fleeting as well if you write a poem about about a fictional person you don't have time it's it's I I I kind of see them as like photographs you know it's a snapshot of that person at that particular time rather than a you know a novel it would be more like a film to put the question in a slightly different way for you then do you like all the characters you write about how about have you have you include the, the few fictional kind of people in your poems have you particularly chosen um characters who you nece- you don't necessarily like um you know have you sort of seen someone in the real world and just thought i don't like that person i'm going to write about them in no. in my poetry have you are there any sort of characters that might be slightly questionable <laughs> no actually and i think that that yeah when you put it around that way for me I, I realise that I do, the people that I would create in my mind are people that I would have some kind of empathy or sympathy with or want to know more about. So they're not going to be complete divots. I think that's, I couldn't put that much better in terms of how I think, to be honest. It's the word empathy, isn't it? So for me, mm. um, if I think about the novel, think about Ace for Angelica, and we have a main character who some people have described as creepy. He certainly initially, you kind of wonder what the hell he's up to. He seems to be kind of, you know, he watches his neighbours, there's this idea of him being a voyeur, and of course he sort of effectively keeps his wife um, prisoner to a degree. That's not quite accurate, but you know, she's he doesn't he doesn't go to get help when he perhaps should have done, or definitely should have done in a medical sense. But the whole point of it for me is that you know you can't have a truly unpleasant character w- with absolutely no redeeming features whatsoever who you can just have no empathy with whatsoever because no it's just impossible to read you need to you need to have at least some understanding of where they're coming from you need to have some idea of why they are who they are or why they do what they do or why they've done what they've done i guess and um just and, remember and, Darth Vader getting his helmet taken off at the end of <laughs> Star Wars, A Return of the Jedi. Suddenly all, none of it mattered. None of the strangulations and the torture, none of it mattered. And that was because you understood him? Yeah. But going back again to George R. R. Martin, I mean, come on, some of his characters, you are just like, you are the most despicable creation ever. You mean you're talking about Joffrey. <laughs> yeah, or as my husband calls him, Jeffrey. Yes. Uh, not not on purpose. Um, 
yeah, well, amongst many of those characters. So it can be done, and but I think you must have to enjoy it, don't you think? Otherwise, it would be pretty depressing. But even with even with even with uh, Joffrey from Game of Thrones, or the, that's the TV show, isn't it? From what's the it's, uh, I, Ice and Wind and <laughs> Wind and Fire? <laughs> what's it? Song of Ice and Fire. YMCA. Yeah. Um, Joffrey, desperately unpleasant person, but you understand why he's like that because you look, you, you see, you know, you get the wider context of the Lannister family and the fact that he um, is, you know, he would appear to be the son of a brother and sister of an incestuous relationship. You don't, you don't just kind of said, right, here's this completely monstrous person and no explanation. This is just who he is. He's just monstrous. There is that context, and you might not. I, I agree, it's difficult to empathise with Joffrey, but there is still that idea of. <laughs> but you're doing a good job of trying. Of trying, yeah. There is <laughs> trying still, to justify his behaviour. Indeed. Um, yeah. But you know what I mean. There is it, that. There is in terms from a writer's point of view. There is that. There is that construct around his unpleasantness that allows a reader, I think, to at least have some understanding of why he is who he is and why he's doing what he's doing. I do agree to an extent, but one of the things that I really love about George R. R. Martin is that I don't think he has any desire to give people closure. You know, any kind of candy floss, Hollywood ending to any kind of situation or to leave you feeling like, oh, now I understand a bit better these things. I just, I think that, you know, life is hard and sometimes not, not everything can be explained. That's, that's, that's what comes out of it for me. And it's a bit more realistic. I mean, obviously, it's completely unrealistic. It's medieval fantasy. But you kind of know what I'm saying, don't you? I think I know what you're saying, yes. I do. Brilliant. So I'm not sure if we've answered that. I think, yes, I I generally like all the characters that I've written about, and I think it would be very difficult for a writer to not like any of their characters. I think that you would struggle to do them any kind of justice if if you weren't able to kind of provide that extra context to explain their actions. Yeah. That's it. Oh, well, thank you. It's gone. It's it's flown by as usual. It has. If anyone wants to find the show notes for this episode, so all, maybe just most of the links uh, that we talked about, the articles that we talked about, that kind of thing, you can find those show notes on the Five by Five website, and you can find them for this show particularly on Five by Five TV slash WFYL slash 108 and you can find it's very easy it's much easier than it used to be Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, you can find me on the internet on twitter at Ian Broom at I-A-I-N-B-R-O-O-M-E or um, my website ianbroom.com and I'm uh, at the flying poet on twitter Um, and that's probably the best place to find me I do have a facebook page but I'm not Gotta be honest, I'm not doing much on it these days. It's terrible. I need to do more. It's yeah, you are not and poetry. You are not accessible. I'm not. I just yeah, not unintentionally. Not intentionally. I mean, I should say. <laughs> See, that's a much politer way of saying it. You don't have <laughs> oh, to be no, spiky. It's pathetic. It's a spineless way to say it. No, I would love to have fans clamouring for my attention. Honestly, I'd send them all little special package books. Well, there's an offer. There's an offer. Buy my book and I'll send it to you, especially with a little horsey stamp on it or something. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm taking you up on my offer for a start. <laughs> cool. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Ian. See you next week, eh? Will do. Ta-ta. Bye.